Welcome to the Real Estate Sessions and join industry leaders as they share their stories and offer tips and advice to real estate professionals. Now your host, Bill Rissa of Chicago Title, Arizona. Welcome back everybody to the Real Estate Sessions and I'm very excited to have my first mortgage professional. It took us way too long. We're at episode 19, but it was worth the wait. Today's guest is Amy Sweeney. Amy is the uh, Arizona Regional Manager for Citywide Home Loans. She's also a CMB, which is a certified mortgage banker, and she has over 20 years in the business. And if someone asked me how to describe Amy in a few words, it would probably be something like educator and industry advocate. Everywhere, every time I see her, wherever, whatever event we're at or whenever I see her online, she's either helping somebody get better in their business or helping the business get better by being super active in the legislative process. And it's just awesome to have her in Arizona. So she's, she's also an active member of the Hispanic Association of Real Estate Professionals. Uh, like I said, many trips to Washington, D.C. on behalf of the industry. And we have to mention this. She's a proud University of Utah Ute, so we won't hold that against her. But (laughs) (laughs) welcome to the podcast, Amy. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's it's a pleasure to be here. I want to start at the beginning. I like part of this. The reason for the real estate sessions is to find out who people are, where they came from, how, why they're who they are. And so let's start with the fact that you've been in this business a long time. And if I've got it right. While you're in college at Utah, you were also in the business already. How did that kind of happen? I was. I, um, well, it even goes back further than that, that from what most people know. My my father was president of of a community bank for as long as I can remember um, growing up in Utah. And my mom's family was the family that formed Zion's Bank. So I've been in a banking family my entire life. And in college, I somehow landed a, a friendship with someone that um, needed they needed a receptionist, a receptionist at a mortgage company, and I needed a you know couple bucks for college. And I went in, and the owner of the company liked my personality and liked me, and the rest they say is history. So and I've been doing this ever since. So in your blood, you're going to say it's you were you were born, yeah. <laughs> so let's exactly. Let's follow the path a little bit. How um, you, you graduate from Utah, and how did you end up in Arizona? So I, um, after I I graduated from the University of Utah, I um, I actually spent a few weeks in Europe with my family. Um, my sister lived there at the time, and I came back and I, I became an originator um, in Salt Lake at a mortgage company called Diversified Mortgage Services, and I had. It's funny because a lot of the people that I worked with there are still active in the industry in different positions, and I, I'm still very close with a lot of them. And what happened was when I've, I've been active as an originator for several years, I had some um, personal things with some friends that, that occurred where a good friend of mine was, was killed in a car accident, and I decided I kind of took stock on my life and I was about 27 at the time and I decided after being involved in Salt Lake I needed a change and so I knew that our company um, wanted to open a mortgage company the first out-of-state mortgage branch of our company and I figured there was no better time than right now so I had never been to Arizona um, other than actually that's not true I'd never been to 
Scottsdale. Um, I'd been to Tucson, but I'd never been to Scottsdale. It just so happened that somebody I was dating had lived in Tucson, so I, um, I'd been down there. But I came out to Scottsdale and knew that this was going to be the place for me, and I loved the fact that it was beautiful and it was like being on vacation. And I needed some challenges. And so I said, send me. And they did. So now you, you end up here and you're um, and you've you've moved to a, a couple different companies, not a ton, but you've kind of moved through. You're currently with Citywide. And yep. there's, you know, when I, when I was running a branch for Chicago Title, you know, my the, the best moments for me um, were, were when you had a client, usually a first time home buyer, you know, at the closing table, you're signing their package. They're so excited. It was so fulfilling. And I'm, I'm assuming that that's gotta be the same way for a, for a mortgage off for a loan officer to be able to, you know, maybe take somebody who's never knew they could, they could, you know, qualify for a mortgage or get into a home. It, it, how, how satisfying is that for you? You know, it's, <laughs> that's, the only thing that really through all of the hard times and the financial crisis and all of the things that have gone on in our industry over the last 20, 25 years that I've been doing this, um, that has truly been the, the mainstay. That's been the, the, the thing that's kept me going. You know, it's been in different versions. You know, when I first got in the business, I was this young, you know, 20 something who was this little little chick from Utah that was trying to get business from all these, you know, grown up banker men. And I thought that it was, you know, that the whole world was going to be first time home buyers for me for my entire career. But then what I found out was that the people my age caught up and they started buying homes. And so my friends became home buyers. And then what I've also found out is that those people that I helped start when I first start got into the business, they started buying their second house, you know, and they started um, moving into their move up house and they came back to me and the, the process of, you know, I know that a lot of people use the customer for life for life philosophy, but I remember reading the book customers for life. And I remember that thought process of that was how I wanted to feel all the time. I wanted to be with people that wanted to be with me. And so these people that kept coming back to me just kept me going. My, I would be at the grocery store and people would come up to me and say, oh my gosh, you helped me buy my, my first house and my kids are ready to, to buy. I mean, it's, it just keeps growing and it keeps growing and it's, it's a, it's an amazing feeling, um, to be able to help people, you know, in the, in the pre-crisis, my book of business was what everybody, everybody in the business wanted. It was the ultimate goal. It was the, you know, the jumbo loan amount. It was the 700 credit scores. It was the self-employed business guys. I, you know, it was, it was what everybody wanted and it was fulfilling but you moved away from getting to know people for who they were when you got into the um, the market where it was the home was just another investment. Um, when we had when we went through the crisis, what I found as you know we had to kickstart our business over and over again. What I found was 
getting back to the first time home buyer was the best thing in the world for me. It was so rejuvenating and it was so wonderful because as hard as things were, now understand that my background was not just advocating for my clients, but it was advocating for the industry as a whole, you know, and getting beat up in Washington, D.C., and then coming back and getting beat up on the, in Main Street, it was hard. And the one thing that kept it going was when you were at a closing and somebody looked at you and they said, we, could, we never thought we were going to be able to do this. And now with my, um, with my involvement with the Hispanic Association of Real Estate Professionals, that has just come, I mean, that has been the best thing that, that I think I've ever done with the industry. The being able to help the Hispanic culture and community, even though I'm not Hispanic, being able to give back to people that, that are so family oriented and so um, culture driven has meant the world. And in fact, we had a client just maybe a week and a half ago when we called them to tell them that they were approved, she actually started crying. Wow. And she just was so excited. She, could, she was a single mom um, with a couple of kids and was so excited because her house that she had been renting was literally falling down. And the fact that we, made it, we were able to make her a home buyer or a homeowner, she couldn't even express. Yeah, Those, that's, that's, that's what gets you through the, the good stuff. Right. Yeah. That's what makes it all worthwhile <laughs> when you have to deal Absolutely. with the other part of it. Right. So let's, well, let's get to the other side for a second. Then let's talk about, you know, you have a very few consumers and to be quite honest, probably even realtors understand what happens inside a mortgage branch. You know, what are the, what the processes and all the things that are happening back there? So if you had to pick one thing, what's, what's the most misunderstood aspect of your industry? Well, it's kind of funny because I've said to many of my friends in this business, you know, we should really do like a real housewives of the mortgage industry. Nice. And, nice. But, but unfortunately, I think we'd all probably um, end up, I don't know, killing each other or going to jail or something. But, um, you know, we, what we do behind the scenes is if you had to sit down and actually look at what all we do in a transaction, I think a consumer would be absolutely shocked. Um, the, the CEO of our company actually was, um, flew down here to do an interview with me for a recruit and, uh, and she came in and, and we were talking about the metrics um, in our company. And they had actually done a, a touch schedule where every person that touched a file and how many times they had touched that file um, from start to finish, they counted it. And it was well into the 200 range wow. yeah. on one file. Because of all of the compliance, all the quality control, all of the interaction with the real estate community, with the borrower, with the, you know, all the way to shipping the file into the secondary market. You know, you were, you're talking multiple times and multiple people and tasks that have to be accomplished on a timeline that is sometimes shortened to 
sometimes less than 15 days. And the number of touches doesn't change depending upon how long you have. It just is how many touches you have to do in one day. And so what, what I think is most un misunderstood about our industry is that, is that lenders keep a lot of the quality control and the requirements that we have to overcome. We don't really talk a lot about it. I do because I think it's fascinating. But overall in the industry, I think we kind of keep our partners in the dark because it's so overwhelming and we don't want we don't we want that we want it to look easy. But to be very honest, it's not. Loans have not been easy in a very long time. And in order to accomplish everything that we have to accomplish to make the miracle of home ownership occur is it's a phenomenon that we were able to do that. And if you're trying to do it on your own, you just there's just no way. To ha you have to have a team behind you helping you. Yeah, and it's not getting any easier, obviously, as we've moved into the um, <laughs> since Dodd Frank and 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 the CFPB creation in 2011. We've got to spend some time talking about that today. We would be remiss if we didn't. And let's. Th the first thing is when I, I did a bunch of trade classes and as well as you, and yep. talking about the TILA RESPA integrated disclosure regulations, because that really affected realtors. But lenders, yep. lenders have been affected by the CFPB almost since day one. They've been rolling out some things that you've had to deal with. So rattle off a few of those. What are some of the things that since really 2011 you've, you've been dealing with with the CFPB? So even going back further than that, so I've been going to Washington several times, multiple times a year since about 2002. And... Um, in 2010, I remember sitting in Washington when they announced that the Consumer Protection and Wall Street Reform Act um, was going to, was going to be passed, which was later everybody started calling it Dodd Frank. Mm -hmm. So you know, I've I've been dealing with all of the massive changes, and even before Dodd Frank, we were already dealing with the Federal Reserve's ruling on um, loan officer compensation in the fact that the feds decided that the government should regulate um, what loan officers can make on a transaction. And to just kind of give you an idea of what that means is that um, imagine as a real estate agent, you make a commission and you get to set that commission. Nobody can tell you what you, what you can and can't charge. And then all of a sudden you wake up after doing that for 20 years, you wake up and the next day the government says that you can only charge 2%, hmm. period. No, it doesn't matter what you have to do. It doesn't matter how big or small the house is. It doesn't matter um, how hard or easy the transaction is. That's what you get to charge. And if you charge anything more or less, then you're going to be um, told that you're discriminating. And so we started dealing with the loan officer compensation, which was a rule before Dodd-Frank came out. It got rolled into Dodd-Frank. We started dealing immediately with the Dodd-Frank rules with the um, qualified mortgage rule, so the QM rule, mm -hmm. the qualified, um, the QRM rule, which has to do with liquidity. Um, we had to deal, deal with the ability to repay rule, which meant that we had to prove that somebody had a job and had the capacity to make their mortgage payments. Um, and 
you know, from a very abstract thing, especially for someone who says who's maybe self-employed, that you know, you basically you're telling the government how much you've made, and then you turn around and from what you've told the government you've made, I have to now use that as hard and fast as what we can qualify you for on the mortgage. But you, if you, if a self-employed borrower utilized all the tax or the tax benefits that they're allowed under the law, um, the amount of of acceptable income that someone could use was cut back dramatically. So that was a big change in our industry, and it definitely impacted a lot of people. Then from that rule, um, we also went into the fair housing laws that and disparate impact which we started getting from the side, not just of, of Dodd-Frank, but we started getting that from the, the HUD rulings. Um, and HUD actually had, had made many, many, many changes in between all this time to FHA. FHA has gone through, let's see, since 2010, off the top of my head, I could probably count three or four different price changes for the mortgage insurance premiums hmm. um, that we've had to go through. I could tell you we get about 30 more, thirty to 40 mortgagee letters a year, which change the way that we do things with, with FHA. Um, we've had complete, complete and total change of how we handle condominiums with FHA because of the rulings from that. Um, then last March, I, our company was asked to be a part of the small business review panel for the Humda changes that have just um, taken place. So I was in DC at the treasury meeting with the CFPB with our CEO um, going through and offering insights and, and exchanges regarding all of the requirements that they are now going to require that lenders report to the government on personal financial information that a con consumer cannot opt out of. So we've been involved in the Humda changes. We, on top of that, we also have all of the changes to the, the National Mortgage Licensing System, right. which is right. the NMLS. So on top of everything else, we still have to be educated, um, 20 hours of pre-licensing and then eight hours continuing education every year. Plus, if you haven't taken it before, you have to take a test, um, a standardized test for the federal rules, and then depending upon the state that you want to be licensed in, you have to take an individual state test, um, plus the continuing education requirements within that specific state. Every state is different. So if I want to be licensed in more than one state, I have to do that. Yeah, and then on October 3rd, they decided to pull the carpet out from, that's not true. We've actually known about it for 20 months. So right. for us, I've known about it since they've, they've announced it. I've been working on it. I've, I started writing classes. I started researching. Um, I started being involved in committees and, and, and you know, locally and nationally um, so that I would be prepared because that's my, that's my forte is to be ready for the changes that occur prior to them changing and make sure that our industry is ready for them as well. And so I um, started working on that about almost two, well, it's a little over two years ago, started working on that development. And 
that went into play on October 3rd, which changed every the way that we do business as we know it. We're we're recording this this episode in mid-November, so we are we've absolutely closed a lot of the trid loans already. They they're this is they're all hitting and yep. and we're working through the process. Um, a lot of it's a lot of back and forth with lenders and and escrow officers to make sure that we have all the numbers in place to make sure we're accurate and compliant. Um, tell me, Correct. give me your take. What are your early impressions as we you know really kind of hit it here in mid November? You know, I think that so far so good. I think it's pretty much um, exactly what we expected. Everybody's, you know, the the applications for TRID applications dropped 25% from the norm um, that normally of the norm amount that we have for applications. So right after TRID occurred, we had a very big slowdown. So um, we have to take into account that we were going through a slower time, so we had the time to, to manage the pipelines. We also have a lot more staffing and watchful eyes going on. I know that our CEO and um, our managers, our, our operations managers, are basically sitting in our operations department for the month, just watching to make sure everything's going through and holding the hands of each file um, as they go through. And that's just not realistic. You know, that's not going to occur for the, for the next, you know, after this transition is, has been in place for a while. But for right now, we are seeing a lot of things being taken care of because of this extra care that we are, we're watching. But I do believe that as volumes pick up, and I do believe that as um, as the speed of and the expectation of the speed of closings increases, I think we are going to see that it's much more difficult than what people are experiencing right now. I do think that a lot of the concern, um, a lot of the concern on the lenders' perspective is that we are going to be ultra conservative whenever we roll something out. So we're probably you know, taking a very conservative route and look at, at guidelines and rules, um, which might loosen up after a few months. But I, and I also see that the future of what we're doing, as people get used to it, as people see that this is the way it's going and it's not going to change, and it's not going to go back to the way we used to do things, I think people are going to start realizing the opportunities and the amazing you know, outlook going forward of all of the the changes that can be still made for a better industry overall. It's actually going to, it's going to be moving into a, a revolutionary way of doing business. You know, if you think back about our industry, I mean, I've been doing this for 25 years and we've done it the same way pretty much for the last 25 years. Oh, I, I agree. I, I think the consumer experience um, when we get this all hammered out and we got it figured out, I think it's going to get insanely better than what we've done in the past. I think that's what you're talking about, right? I absolutely, that's exactly what I'm talking about. The consumer experience, and I think even in the, the, uh, um, the interested parties in the transaction, I think once they let go and realize everything's going to be okay, you know, that we are we are going to progress and everything's going to be, you know, 
eventually we're going to be comfortable with this way of doing business as well, that I think once we get to that point, people are going to start embracing all of the opportunities to further revolutionize the industry to make it more expedient and more um, user-friendly and more um, flexible. You know, we always have been compared to the car industry of, you know, well, you can go and buy a $80,000, $100,000 car in 20 minutes, you know, why is it so hard to buy a house? Well, the car industry and the financing industry and the car side, they've been able to, you know, been able to move and, and evolve in this industry and, and evolve in their industry. We haven't. The home loan business, you know, it's, we're in the, we're still archaic. You know, we still have to have, you know, wet signatures on certain things. We still have to have hand typed things. I mean, you know, there's, there are things that are going to go away that need to go away. Right. And it's, it's just now that we're starting to see that. Let's talk a little bit more about the CFPB, um, you know, the TRID. TILA RESPA Integrated Disclosures is just one component of the, the regulations they've put forth. And they're also kind of in charge of compliance with RESPA, um, Truth and Lending Act in, uh, as well. And the whole compliance with the CFPB as far as RESPA regulation, is it Z? Regulation Z, uh-huh. Yeah. So, Tell me, you know, how your take, and I've heard you speak about this multiple times, that we're in a whole new world when it comes to how lenders and, and title companies, for that matter, um, interact and work together with realtors as far as MSAs go and marketing and all that kind of stuff. So how, right. are, we, how are we doing as an industry with that? Um, are we getting there? Well, I, I think so. I mean, I think that that the people that aren't there – are just slow learners. <laughs> um, I think that you know the, you you started out saying that you know the CFPB is is taking over or is um, has become the the enforcer of certain regulations and and just so that so that you and your listeners um, understand the CFPB when it was when it was created in Dodd Frank the creation of the the regulator itself gave that regulator authority over any consumer transaction. So basically anything that had to do with the consumer over about seven different regulators. So if, if of, of all of the regulators that basically lenders and financial industries were regulated by previously, um, there are seven, seven regulators that the CFPB came in and they now umbrellaed over all of those um, all of those agencies, and what the so basically the agencies are still there, but their authority to enforce the consumer protection was given to the CFPB. Okay. So so basically anything where the consumers could go in and basically complain, okay, that, those complaints still go through those chat those the correct channels, or they can go directly to the CFPB. But even if they go through, let's say HUD, for example, if you're talking about a RESPA complaint, it can go through HUD, but it's going to be funneled up to the CFPB if it has to do with the consumer, with the consumer part of RESPA. So, so basically the CFPB just came in and, and 
became this umbrella regulator, or we like to call it the super regulator, over these seven financial agencies. And when, when they did that, uh, people didn't really feel that change, unless you were really in the industry, you didn't feel that change, until probably within the last 12 to 18 months. And the reason I say that is because we started seeing that, that the CFPB was making a lot of noise with, with what are called consent orders, which basically are the CFPB has gone after somebody or has identified issues where they have not been compliant with, with one or more of different laws. And then the person that they have said that they've named in this um, that hasn't been compliant basically consents rather than goes to trial or goes and tries to fight them, they consent and say, you're right, I've done this, 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 and this, I'd rather pay a fine than continue to fight this. Okay. Right. So these consent orders, so these consent orders have started to come out and these consent orders are basically giving, giving the industry an indication as how the CFPB looks at certain regulations within our industry. So the biggest one that has that people have taken note on is Section 8 of RESPA. And Section 8 of RESPA says that you cannot, um, you cannot pay or receive, so it's either way, a thing of value for the referral of settlement services. Okay? So it doesn't say you can't get $25 or more. It doesn't say, you know, that under $25 or under $5 it's acceptable. It says you cannot get anything of value for in turn for the referral of settlement services between a settlement service provider. Mm -hmm. So that impacted everybody in the real estate transaction. That impacted real estate agents, that impacted lenders, that impacted title and escrows, that impacted, you know, home insurance, home warranties, um, any, basically, I like to say anybody that's going to be paid on the settlement statement. If you're a settlement service provider, you're impacted. And then what, what happened was after all these consent orders started coming down, they started seeing that the CFPB was a lot, was going after a lot more aggressively some of the things that have never been really tested. Um, and under the under the heading of RESPA Section 8. And so where what started out as a you know as a just a transaction between you and I let's say, you know, I like to do business with you, you like to do business with me, so I refer my clients over to you, you refer your clients over to me, and everything's going great. What happened over time was you started realizing how much business you were sending me and maybe you said, hey, well, that's as a part of your business, you know, maybe you should feel a little bit more obligated to help me out to generate that business. Or maybe I would say, you know, you're a big partner in my business. I need to make sure that you don't start sending that business somewhere else. Right. And that, that referral of these services without monetary incentive kind of morphed into these different versions of ways to 
basically just pass money back and forth in between settlement service providers. And however you however you structure it, whatever you call it, if it is a if there is a monetary incentive for me to be able to get business from you or you to give business to me, it is a violation of RESPA. When we talk specifically about MSAs or marketing services agreements, everyone will quote the lighthouse title consent order. Right, up in Michigan. Yeah. Exactly, which specifically stated that the contract of a MSA, if it is, um, if the person that you're in contract with is receiving referrals for you, that contract is a thing of value. And that was the first thing that the CFPB really put in writing that could go back and say the MSA could be looked at as a violation of RESPA. You know, from what everybody had, oh, all the lawyers said, we can still do it, we can do it, we can structure it, we can verify it, we can do this, we can do that. That's great. But the bottom line comes in is whether the companies involved, and that means giver and or receiver, right. really want to spend the money to have their attorneys fight the CFPB in court over whether or not your MSA agreement is not a thing of value. It's something I've been saying for a long time, and I think you're probably going to agree with this as well. We, Until the CFPB is, um, makes themselves known in Arizona, I have a feeling that there'll be people still trying to say that, hey, my attorney said this is okay, we're going to keep doing these things. But that will probably change rather quickly once once somebody's felt the pain <laughs> here in the state. Absolutely. Well, and yeah. if you think about it, you know, we've already started to see it a little bit because as soon as Prospect Mortgage and um, and Wells Fargo pulled out of their massive MSAs right. and said, it's not worth it to us, that that made people stand up and think, wait a minute, well, why would they say that? You know, right. you're going to start seeing a lot of other big companies do the same thing very quickly here because there's just a, it's really hard to make that justification of how a payment of cash or anything else cannot be construed of a thing as a thing of value when you are receiving referrals. That's enough trid talk for today. What do you say? Oh, perfect. <laughs> so I want to on a personal level, Amy, I want to ask you. A very personal question. Um, you and I are both, um, I like to call us cancer conquerors. Are you okay with that term? <laughs> That's a perfect term. Okay. It's so. a lot better. Those are some nicer C words I've been called. <laughs> <laughs> so so I think, um, I just want to find out how you're doing and, um, and where you're at in your progress and how things are going. Yes, I am a stage three breast cancer um, survivor so far, so I'm doing pretty good. Good, excellent. <laughs> um, I had my first and last mammogram on August 15th of 2011. I was 39 years old. I had an 18-month-old baby, and I had been married to the love of my life for about four years at that point. It was a complete shock. Um, nobody in my family had cancer uh, or had breast cancer. Nobody, you know, there wasn't, so there wasn't any family history. I didn't have the, um, I didn't have the gene that, 
you know, everybody asks about. Mm -hmm. I, um, but what I did find out was through all the tests, um, that initial couple of weeks, and you probably know this as well, that initial couple of weeks when you first get diagnosed, it's all tests. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's all you do for like three weeks. <laughs> yep. And so, um, so for those first few weeks, one of the tests came back and said that I also had a benign mengenoma, um, mengioma, I guess it's called. It's a benign brain tumor. And um, that was kind of a shocker as well. But we kind of didn't want to deal with that <laughs> yet. We had bigger things to deal with at the time. And so I went through 18 weeks of chemo. I went through, let's see, a double mastectomy, three reconstructive surgeries, a couple of infections, and seven weeks of daily radiation, and just recently a hysterectomy. Um, so I'm four years out. I'm still on anti-cancer medications, and I will be for the next probably six years. Um, and I still have my brain tumor. But I, it's like I said, it's benign, it's slow growing, it doesn't, um, I'm crazy enough, I think, so I don't really want to go in there and mess anything else up. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> awesome. so I get it checked, um, I get it checked once a year, and in fact, I'm, I'm due for one right now. My husband's on me dramatically to go get it done, but I am due for a, a check here. Um, and everything else, I'm, I mean, I feel great. I, I feel like I've got a lot of my energy back. You're never, I don't think you ever recover from cancer. Um, you probably can attest to that. Yeah, there's um, little, for me, there's little things that are uh, never going to be the same. True. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's definitely, a, there's a, a saying that I've, um, I've seen around that says there's, a point in your life that you will always reference your life before cancer and your life after cancer mm. yeah. because that that was a defining moment but I look at cancer and I think it was the hardest absolute hardest thing I've ever been through um, when I say that I can do hard things I mean it <laughs> You know, I keep telling my husband, I'm like, you kept trying to kill me off, but I keep, I'm still here. So, you know, you better just stop. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, um, but I, it was the hardest thing I've ever been through, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I like that attitude. So I like that a lot. Good. Well, I, yeah. I've taken way too much of your time today. I want to, but I, I do ask one question of every guest and I'm going to, I'll wrap this up with this last question. And okay. it's. Um, you're not in. You're not a realtor, and you're the first um, person that I've had uh, as a guest on the show who, somewhere in their career, wasn't a realtor. So, I, but I still think you're going to have an answer for this. Tell me okay. if you could give one piece of advice to a new agent or somebody who's kind of plateaued and they're not doing what they really want to be doing. What's one okay. piece of advice you would give them? You know, the best thing that I ever learned in my career was to surround yourself with people that are better than you. And I would say that if you are in your career and you're kind of stagnating, you need to start looking to find people that 
are doing the things you want to be doing but aren't, are accomplishing the things that you want to accomplish but haven't, and then you need to go and either emulate what they're doing or you need to make them friends. And my in my life, I've tried to do the, the latter and I've tried to make those people very close friends. I always try to surround myself with people that I think are better than me so that I can always reach up and I'm brought up in their presence. I learn something from them every day and it's things that I can apply into my own career and my own personal life every single, single day. And that's been that's been something I've done my entire life. And it's probably been the, the thing that's made me the most successful, at least in my eyes. So. Amy, thank you so much for joining us here on the Real Estate Sessions. I really appreciate your time and, and I love your insight and your input. And I will definitely, I know, be seeing you around the valley. Well, thank you so much, Bill. You're an amazing influence in our industry as well. And I appreciate you letting me be the first lender. I I, really, I find that a big honor. So thank you so much. And I look forward to hearing from you and seeing you as well. Well, that's it for episode 19 of the Real Estate Sessions. Thank you so much for finding us in our little corner of the internet universe. So excited that you found us. Please keep telling your friends about the podcast. It's how it grows. And we will see you next week. Thanks again. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Real Estate Sessions with Bill Risser of Chicago Title, Arizona. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and tell your friends about the Real Estate Sessions as new episodes are published weekly.